1: cool welcome, I suppose. It's 8 degrees outside, but it's spring, so let's hope the weather warms up a little bit today, given the last two days of rain. This is Lalita Chalaya here, your host, through to 9 o'clock. We have some interesting um, interviews on this morning, Um, so we shall just start with Dick, and then we will go on to Michael Leach, who I'll explain all about later. And we have a special guest from Jay Tillich was visiting last week who I interviewed. But what a week we've had. um, The One Nation Senators making their maiden speeches. And that has been quite um, not surprising for people who understand where they come from. But I guess it's um, not so wonderful for people who expected more from the senators they elected. But the latest news is um, the One Nation has employed somebody from the USA, an economic advisor to Donald Trump, to boost their team. But there are things to watch and see how things go. Politics is always up and down and complicated, but we shall move on to uh, Dick Nichols, who is a um, correspondent for Green Life Weekly. And he lives in Barcelona in Spain and reports regularly for, um, Solidarity Breakfast and Green Left, um, from Europe about what things, what goes on in Europe and given all the shenanigans with refugees and the tightening and hardening positions by, um, European countries against refugees is worth watching. And let's look at what the left is doing. Uh, Dick went to a, a conference in Portugal in relation to the left. Gearing up for their own battle against the neoliberal agenda in Europe, uh, given what happened in uh, Greece and um, you know the, the Brexit vote in Britain, things are quite dynamic. So let's start with Dick Nichols talking about his observations at the conference in Portugal about the Left is reunited. Welcome to 3 C I think good to have you on board again. And Always a pleasure. And it's um, been some time, but this time we're looking at Portugal and we hear very little about Portugal in Australia. Maybe we could do a little bit of a brief background before you, we launch into the result of the conference that you attended there.
2: Well, yes. I mean, Portugal, maybe people have heard that there's a, um, the right-wing government lost the elections last Last year, yes. uh, late last year, and that, uh, but they still had a relative majority, and they were expecting to be accepted as the new government. But what happened was that the Socialist Party, which was the second party, got support from the left bloc, which is the and the Communist Party. The left bloc is a sort of new left party which brings together far left organisations and a lot of independent people. Um, and, and the Greens and, too, doesn't it? And, and, well, the Greens are separate. The Greens mm-hmm. are just a separate organization. But there are a lot of green people in, in, in the left block. Put a lot of ecologically minded people in all the left, in the left block. That's for sure. So it's very strong on environment. So mm. it's, uh, you can't just say that all the environmentally conscious people are in the Greens. Mm. But anyway, the point of it all is that, they, mani- they said, the left bloc and the, the Communist Party said to the Socialist Party, we will support you in government. We won't participate in government, but we'll support you in government uh, as long as you give us some guarantees about uh, no more cuts, no more privatisations and an increase in the minimum wage and an increase in welfare payments, mm. which the Socialist Party did. And to their credit, the, the, the candidate, uh, for the Socialist Party, who is the former mayor of Lisbon, a bloke called Antonio Costa, mm-hmm. stared down his own uh, most right-wing, most conservative people and said, no, we're going to do this. Uh, and there was actually quite a sizable fight inside the Socialist Party over whether they could really be dependent of support from people from their left. But he won that fight and uh, then you've, so you've had a, a Socialist Party government, which has since then implemented probably the majority of the 70 points that were agreed uh between the socialist party and the organizations to its left and has is now as presently very popular in portugal its uh the latest poll i've seen has the socialist party at uh, the the left at about 57% support and the right down to 35% and that i uh, up to sixty six percent of people think they are either doing a very good job, a good job, or an okay job, which must be the most popular party in the whole of europe frankly <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> uh, and and basically that 's because they 've just they 've done what they said they do, and people have felt a definite but discernible improvement to their Live, you know, the conditions of life, you know, nothing immense, nothing wonderful, but, you know, pensioners have suddenly got a bit more money. People on the minimum wage have got a bit more money. Suddenly, no, there's no, not going to be any more privatisations. So some big privatisations took place under the right wing, and the Socialist Party also accepted uh, privatising, uh, going ahead with privatisation that was underway uh, when they came into power, which was the privatisation of the, the National Airline but despite all of that uh you have this is the you know it's it's a felt advance it is at the so at the left block congress they their position is basically this is a, an advance but it is not enough to guarantee that the country will continue to advance and that's the next sort of struggle mm, and the so. main, the main base the main point of struggle will not so much be directly with the government but getting the government to have enough spine to stand up to the pressure from the European yes, Union was going on, to say. on austerity. Yeah. Mm, that's
1: going to be a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because after uh, seeing what's happened in Greece and, of, and the Brexit, of course, the EU can't be too bold because if they go for a referendum, they might do a Portuguese exit of some kind.
2: Well, they, they've so got a big problem. The, 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 European powers that be, I mean, the present, when we say European powers that be, what are we talking about? The present ruling forces in Europe, which is basically a coalition between the right of, between the social democracy and the conservatives, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, paid quite a sizable political price for their brutal, sadistic attack on Greece. Yes. Uh, And... What happened in Portugal was very interesting that the, this government was supposed not to be formed, and all the powers that be, including in Portugal, including important people connected with Europe, like the former commissioner, the former president of the European Commission, who was Portuguese, and whose name just escapes me for the time being, um, they came out against the formation of this government. The trouble is now that it 's in power, it 's done some good stuff. Uh, it's f- felt to have done good things and faced with that, the European Commission and the European Council, which is the heads of state of the Euro- affiliate, uh, the member states of the European Union, backed off enforcing a fines on Portugal and on Spain because, when these two countries fell way behind their targets, their obligatory targets for public sector budget deficit reduction. Uh, according to any reading of the European law and regulations, they sh- both Spain and Portugal should have been should have been fined um, because they were way behind their uh, com- their commitments on this. But the European powers had decided not to do it because they they knew that you know taking on Portugal and a country that has gone through terrible austerity, yes. and Spain, which is very important to them, where you know, they're trying to avoid a Portuguese or even a semi-Portuguese kind of solution here because we have no government, we have an acting government uh, of the right wing, uh, that really would have just inflamed the political situation, especially after Brexit, uh, to a degree that they just felt completely unconfident, correctly, that they would, be able to, they would have been able to control.
1: Yeah. So I now so you've got this left government, so to speak. What does it look like? I mean, are they, how are they going to stay in power? Because surely the right wing is not going to sit back and let them continue for too long.
2: Well, they're not. I mean, it's sort of you say, is this a left government? Yes, it is a left government. But what do we mean by left government? It's a, it's a socialist party government. Mm. It'd be like having a Labour Party government. Yeah, social for democracy. Australia. Yeah 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 but it's like having a Labour Party government mm. that is that, under pressure from forces to its left uh, has said okay, but which needs pressure from, needs an agreement with forces to its left. imagine Bill Shorten had won the last <laughs> election oh, and the greens were more powerful, yeah uh, and there are other forces like socialist Alliance and other forces there with some role to play, yeah and they said, okay, bill, we'll sh- support you. But you're going to have to agree to some things. You're going yeah. to have to agree that there's you know, you know there's going to be a decent minimum wage. You're going to have to agree that there's going to be no more privatizations. You're going to have to agree on all these points. And that's then you would get a government which would be actually quite popular because it did some decent stuff from mm. the point of view of a mass of, mass of ordinary people. Mm. But it would also be a government that would be in a very difficult situation because it's capacity to actually carry out what it's supposed to carry out from the point of view of big capital would be reduced and that's the situation that the Portuguese government's in, the Socialist Party government's in uh, and it's also got, uh, you've got the added dimension of course that is which is that everything comes from Brussels. You know all the pressure comes from internally but m- the most important pressure comes from uh, the European powers that be. So we will now see It'll be very interesting because one of the reasons I think, and I think a lot of people think this, and I've seen comments to this effect, uh, that they backed off was that the left bloc said uh, Portugal has never had a referendum on whether it wants to be part of the European Union. Hmm. Portugal's never had a referendum on whether it wants to be part of the fiscal compact, which is the legislation and regulation that sets the targets for uh, you know the size of the deficit you can have and which determines these, these, these punishments, which they have not imp- implemented in this case, uh, well, why doesn't Portugal have a referendum on this? Uh, and we will, f- you know, there's, and there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with people deciding, there's nothing wrong with a referendum, um, and if people get fed up with this, uh, we will fight for a referendum. And so the left bloc said, if they proceed to try and punish Portugal for having, not meeting the budget targets, which was due to their very policies, i.e. austerity, so that it ran the economy into the ground, so it became impossible to meet these deficit reduction targets. Mm. If you insist on this, we'll have a political campaign for a referendum on whether we want to be part of the EU. EU, yep. So that, I think, had an impact. Mm. Uh, And so they know that's sitting there, and they know the sentiment out there, so that it was very interesting when the commissioners... The, who were like the ministers uh, for the Euro- European Union when uh, Juncker, who is the president of the European Commission, asked, who was in favour of implementing these fines, by the way. When he, uh, he went, he said, he asked each of the 27, I think there are, commissioners, in turn, what they thought. Uh, by the time he got to the 19th, only four of them, and this includes right-wingers, mm. were in, fa- in favour. Which at that point he said, oh well, let's, you know it's clear that there's a majority against this and so they arranged you know they did, they arranged that it wasn't going to happen but that's it, it gives you a, a it's a reflection of what the political sentiment is there and what what the winds are that people are uh, the political winds are that even at the level of these you know the stratospheric level of brussels are being felt
1: so you went to the conference in lisbon i assume
2: i went to the left bloc's uh tenth national uh, convention their decision-making uh, congress, which they have every two years, uh-huh. and that, that was very that was very interesting. All the discussion was about this. Mm. They've got a really uh, testing situation because they are responsible for there being this left government without their saying uh, it was it was their decision to make this offer to the Socialist Party during the election campaign. Mm-hmm. They said to these, uh, Katharina Martins, who's the national coordinator of the Left Bloc. Yeah. Said on national television to, in the sort of candidates debate, said to Costa, we will support you, uh, for government on the basis of in- no more cuts to wages, increase in the minimum wage, increase in, increase in welfare payments, and a commitment to end privatisations.
1: And the 35-hour week the- got knocked, yeah?
2: Now, 35 hour a week has been introduced. A lot of left-block stuff they withdrew because they knew they weren't, everyone, weren't they going get to it, yeah. get them done. Mm. Um, but they say, and I just want to talk, talk about this, the way they handle this, they said to defeat the right, so make sure we don't have a right-wing government, which is what we've been suffering for since 2011, and this right-wing government, you know, uh, Boasted that it was the best implementer of austerity of any of the European countries that had been, you know, that had been hit with a, um, with a memorandum. Uh, to, in order to avoid having that continue, we will support the Socialist Party government, but it must do some minimum things. Nothing to do with our, in, our entire program, but some, some basic things that change people's lives. And that was, that's why welfare payments, minimum wage, uh, and the welfare payments and minimum wage are into the future. Mm. So there's not, not just one-offs, but a general, a program of gradually increasing the minimum wage and gradually increasing welfare payments. So more and more people who are living, take, living in, in poverty get gradually lifted out of poverty. So that's, you know, that was their basic position. Also that, No more privatisation also means, in the finance sector, no more selling off of Portuguese banks to foreign banks so that Portugal loses complete control of its finance system because they lose complete control of their finance system where they can have all the dreams they like about financing uh, recovery and financing transition to sustainable energy, uh, financing regional development, which is a big issue in Portugal, um, because they won't be able to do it. So that's another whole issue which is boiling away at the moment. The convention was a big debate about, basically, a big discussion about what was accepted, what are the red lines, where do we draw the red lines here, and also how do we keep up pressure on the Socialist Party so that we're building from below, from people, enough pressure to force them to stand up to Brussels. The next, the next issue that's going to hit them... Is the threat from Europe uh, to cut their structural funds? So the, all the European countries have this fund, which is the structural fund, which is for public infrastructure and various other things. And so under the rules that govern this uh, excessive budget deficit uh, procedure, uh, those funds can be cut off. So that that could be that's the next threat, the next piece of blackmail. It mm. will be operated from Brussels, potentially. That's so right, destroyed, that, that,
1: they've all destroyed that, that, that attempt they're making in Portugal, isn't it?
2: Mm. Yeah, no, this, this, this is what they decided, when I say they, what the powers that be led by the German finance minister, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. who was the villain of the peace in the Greek case, <laughs> yes. Schaubler, mm. said so what they said is we will okay we 're not going to cane you now, like naughty boys we 're not going to cane you now, but if you misbehave again, you will really cane you mm. that's that 's the threat okay they make that threat, but that threat immediately has a political impact inside the country. so what the left bloc is saying, try that, and we'll do everything we can to organize uh resistance okay. and that's that 's basically what um the, the, the immediate phase is going to happen after the summer break here. Mm. Uh, but they, that, that's they, going to be the next, the next sort of conflict.
1: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. I'm Lalita Chalaya, your host for this program this Saturday. This interview is with Dick Nichols, who is a correspondent for the Green Left Weekly newspaper. He lives in Barcelona, in Spain. We shall continue with the interview. The approach taken by the uh, conference that you attended had uh, three strategic pieces to it. One, control of the finance sector, yep. to invest in decarbonizing the economy and in, in food sovereignty and yep. regional territorial cohesion, to create jobs and so on. And the third one was reviving workers' rights and fighting casualization. That comes slap bang against the uh, German finance minister's uh, approach I'd say.
2: Well it's not just yeah it it goes against the whole European Commission European Union view of what the problem is in Southern Europe which is you've got excessive labour rights, you've got rigid labour markets etc etc so we want more casualisation, we want it easier to sack people Uh, you know we want it more like Spain where you've had two uh, labour laws which have uh, reduced will have created a "quotes" recovery based on the tourism industry where people work with no rice at all mm. and are complete, completely casualised uh, so that's our model of recovery mm. and that, that's what is being that is exactly what the left block and it, here they've got a lot of support inside the Socialist Party mm. in the unions too uh, are, are opposed to uh, because so Portugal's gone through this you know, whole four years of austerity and, all these, and these policies which were introduced under the memorandum that came in in 2011 mm. and you know, living standards have been reduced. Where's the recovery? Exactly. Workers' rights have been taken away. Mm. There's a slight, slow recovery uh, basically due to increased tourism. Mm. Uh, and so the European Commission answer to this is well you haven't done it enough you know, look next door, look in Spain they've done much better because they've really got into put the boot into workers' rights they've really casualised the labour market so there's your model um, so that's what the battle is going to be um,
1: So the stage is set for a massive fight really between the EU yeah. and what the, the Portuguese government at the moment um, is going to do hopefully
2: well, what is really instructive about this, I think for, for, for those of us on the left who are thinking about, you know, left strategy in advancing, uh, the, the, the class struggle and advancing workers' rights and the, the rights of the majority of the population against, uh, you know, the capitalist elites, is the, the way the left bloc has posed this. They've, they're popular because they are they agreed for us for, they allowed the Socialist Party to come into government. Mm. They, and they killed off the right wing. Yep. So that is a big plus yep. for them. Uh, on the other hand, they, they don't tail behind the Socialist Party. They say all the time, uh, we have disagreements with the Socialist Party on all these things. Renew, uh, for example, restructuring of the debt. You can't really revive the Portuguese economy unless you have a a radical restructuring of the debt which Mm -hmm. enables public investment. You can't revive the Portuguese economy without a big public bank at the very minimum, which enables the government uh, and the councils and and, and communities to have access to the funding that's necessary for all the work that has to be done. I mean, in Portugal, you go there, you can see what they're talking about. So Portugal divides right down the middle. You've got the coast, which has got development of the touristy kind, and then you've got the interior going towards the the border with Spain. And that is, you know, sort of dead and backward, and everybody's leaving these rural villages because there's no work. The younger generation's disappeared. Just the classic rural underdevelopment and regional underdevelopment. How how are you going to change this? You can't change this without... There's only one way to do it, which is with public investment. Uh, a new model of agriculture in the regions, etc., mm-hmm. etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And, in the, in the, and the bloc and a lot of other people have done very good work on this. Um, so this is what the, the left bloc puts up. And the more p- popular that gets, the more their proposals become popular, the more pressure they put on the Socialist Party. And they say openly, we are for a left majority against the right. But there's no law of gravity that says that left, left, a majority has to be hegemonised, has to be basically determined by the by the socialist party. We are looking to be the, so the hegemonic force inside the left. Hmm. Completely honest. Hmm. So they're saying completely honestly, we don't agree with the socialist. We think the socialist party is too timid, too conditioned by the needs of capital, mm-hmm. too, too, you know, what it is, um, uh, and where we're putting our proposals out there and this is very good because it demonstrates that there's politics is struggle yep. you know politics is yep. the fight for the balance of forces that's right and if you if you try and do politics as you know tickets oh they're social democrats we're revolutionaries they're stalinists if you try and think just with labels and not in terms of how do you actually win support and advance your position in society, you know, then, then you're doomed, and that's what they're doing very well uh, indeed, you know, they're doing, doing a very good job there. It's a good uh, struggle, so I
0: mean,
1: just sorting out, sorting out the, the positions and be very clear, and, and convey that to the people publicly, and that's an important you know, a process to go through, so people know who stands where, it's the other part of the equation, I, I suppose.
2: Well, it was a very interesting moment. We, the international, the Left Bloc were very, very uh, hospitable people. They had a, a dinner for the international visitors and delegates from other parties. And, and it's not just a dinner. It's uh, Katerina Martins, the um, Spils- 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 national Spils- Spils- coordinator, yeah. gave a gave a little speech on what they think they're doing, and then t- they take questions from everybody there. Uh, and in answer to one of the questions, she said the best for us, the best indicator that we're doing okay, is that people stop us in the street and say, keep up the good work. That's, you know, not what we read in the media, not, you know, uh, articles from academics, nothing like that. Just, you know, our people in the street get stopped and said, you know, by people and say, we appreciate what you're doing, keep up the good work. And, of course, when you've got that, then you've got the possibility that Socialist Party voters will come across to you because... They see you as doing good work, you know, and that's, that's where they're at at the moment. Um, but it's very difficult. There's a, a very interesting interview with Katarina in the, this weekend's Publico, which is like the age in Lisbon. Mm. Uh, but a very interesting interview about what life is like. And she's saying it's like a permanent torture because we're not, you know, you know, we don't have the comfort of just being in opposition saying, no, 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 you're, you're selling out, you're selling out. Um but we can't, we're not part of the government either. Yes. So we're in this permanent struggle to see what we can get from the government. But we're always we're going to defend this government against the right wing. So and away they go. This produces a, a left wing or inside the block itself who mm. who are opposed to this tactic. Mm. So that's called. There were three tendencies. And that was tendency R at the convention, which has about nine percent which had about 9% support, which was basically saying they should not have done this, mm. uh, should not have signed this agreement. But, it, you know, well, if you say that, then you really have to say it would have been better to have the right wing yeah. in, in government. Yeah. And I don't think... Well, a vast over 80% of the delegates... Um, support what they're doing. So I think that that's a sort of interesting sign.
1: No, but the, the struggle is, is inter- interesting and it's important and it's a public struggle over the left and right-wing views and, and the policies and the strategies um, when explain to the people and, and it, it's that sort of involvement you want. You want to see where the people stand in relation to the positions these different um, parties put forward. And that's a healthy political debate, as opposed to many other countries, including Australia, where the opposition is silenced. Generally, here, when they've got a debate, they um, ban the Greens. It's always the, you know, debate, and the same thing happens in the USA. Whereas here, you've got a broader involvement in the key political positions that are, that are being put forward as debated publicly, so that people can have access to to the uh, information that they need well, to make up their minds.
2: It's, it's very interesting that one of the, the points that's made was made at the convention time and again, is that the left bloc has got this presence at the level of national politics, and now you know they're they're all over the media and they've got television programs. They've got this presence, but what they still don't have, which the Communist Party has because it's been around for much longer, longer and, yeah. you know. It kept going, it led the resistance against the dictatorship up until 1974. Uh, it is structure on the ground, support on the ground, even though they've improved, they've got more branches than before, uh, especially in the regions. And so you see that if you look at the election results from the left block, uh, they get, you know they 've got decent results in the past in the European elections and in general elections general Portuguese elections, but their results in municipal and regional elections are generally quite poor and that 's a reflection of you know that everybody was talking about this that the big job now is to use the gains of the past six months really the gains of since the election the Portuguese elections uh, in order to build themselves uh, in out in there in the you know, in the regions and at the level of the towns. Uh, They're beginning to do that. I mean, they've had really interesting successes on Madeira, which is this holiday island and tax haven, Mm -hmm. uh, where they have two members in the regional parliament. These are basically local activists who stood up and said, we're sick and tired of people telling us the only way you can get jobs in Madeira is by joining tax evasion Industry or the tourism industry. Yeah. You know, there's got to be more to life than this for our for our, for our island. Mm. And now they in the next regional election, they're going to be in the Azores, which is you know the other set of islands, uh, which are Portuguese, and they're going to run a big campaign there. So it'll be interesting to see how they go there. Th- this has got to be done, especially in the in- inner the hinterland of Portugal, I just to say, towards the border with, with Spain. Spain yeah. Well, yeah. it looks
1: like the stage is set for a very interesting journey in the next few um, months or even a couple of years, given this debate's raging now. People are going to have to make up their mind for the next elections through this process of debate, which is much healthier well, than before.
2: I think it's very good for the whole left in Europe and Portugal. It's, it's sort of just, you know, because you, Portugal tends to be forgotten. Yep. You know, oh, yeah, it, Portugal, does. Yeah. it does. Actually, the Europe. left, the left in Portugal, the left block in particular is more mature and mm-hmm. has had more experiences and has thought more deeply about its own experiences and its own crises, the left block it's included, uh, than a lot of other, uh, left organisations. So one of the things that they've come through, this, this, all these complicated questions about broad party versus a party that's got an, you know, good programme but you know, is not going to necessarily win popular support. Um, how you structure, how you build a broad party in such a way that it's, you know, you're not just building an electoral machine, but yeah. you're building something that's got solidity, uh, that's got real commitment from its members, that's got people wanted, are uh, prepared to sacrifice for. Uh, you know, all the all the tricky problems of what concessions should you make to the Socialist Party in front to stay in government? Where do you draw the red lines? All these things which are uh, very very tricky yep. and will never be decided beforehand or on the basis of principles. Mm. Uh, the left bloc is, is sort of leading the way on this stuff. Yeah. But the other thing I'd say is that they have all the experience that goes, a sort of continuity of experience that goes way back to the fight against the dictatorship. Uh, it's like – and they've, they've done one thing which is very important for the left is they've had a generational transition. Their leadership today is between the ages of 40, just over 40, their central leadership, and 28, 29. And mm-hmm. the old leadership, they're doing useful work in the background in think tanks and, you know, supplying stuff. But they're not – they're not making the decisions now, mm-hmm. and, and you know, they're having their say, obviously, like any member, yeah. but that's a very important thing, that yes. they've been able to do that, and, and they have a, 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 the most feminine leadership of any left party in Europe, and I don't think it's a, it's a complete coincidence that that's one of the reasons they're doing so well because they, they introduce a, 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 much, a very different style of, you know, much more collaborative, you know, much more conversational way of doing politics, much less big speeches from a, the front of the room sort of stuff. Okay, very thanks.
1: Yeah, the process is really worth watching, isn't it? I yeah, you no, no, it's, it's,
2: there's a lot to learn from it, and uh, I'll try and keep people in Australia up to speed with this, yeah. with, because there's a lot of material that, we, you know, it's very, very instructive. Yep, um, a lot to learn.
1: Okay, thanks, Dick.
2: Thank you very much, Lali. All and the best.
1: You have a good day. Bye. Now, um, our next in- interview is with um, Michael Leach, who is the Chair of the Department of Education and Social Sciences in the Faculty of Arts and Design at the Swinburne University. Now, he's going to talk to us about um, East Timor, Um, I guess some people would be familiar with the fact that East Timor and Australia are in dispute at the Permanent Court of Arbitration, PCA in short, at The Hague, and uh, our Honourable Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, and uh, the Progressive Attorney General George Brandes have issued a joint statement, and this is what they say. In line with our pre-existing, legally binding treaties, which are in full accordance with the international law, we will argue that the Commission does not have jurisdiction to conduct hearings on maritime boundaries. In other words, this means that Australia will not accept the tribunal's award on the disputes. So uh, there are multiple angles to this dispute, and it's really interesting. And Michael Litch, who um, is quite an expert in this area, is full of information. He tries to pull the different parts of the dispute apart and, and uncomplicate it. So I'll leave it to Michael to explain the dispute, and uh, hopefully that will refresh your views on what's happening in the dispute between East Timor and um Australia. Welcome to 3CR, Michael, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to Solidarity your Breakfast. You're welcome. Okay, let's um, have a bit of a starting point with this East Timor dispute. It's been going for many years now, just since 2001, hasn't
3: it? Well, 2002 was the uh, year that East Timor had its um, independence restored. 2002 was a significant year. Um, the Timorese independence was restored in May 2002. A few months before that, Australia dropped out of the, dis- the binding dispute jurisdictions, binding dispute resolution jurisdiction for uh, two treaties. One was UNCLOS, the UN um, Convention on the Law of the Sea, and the other was the uh, Maritime Boundary uh, Jurisdiction under the International Court of Justice. So Australia dropped out of the binding uh, dispute resolution procedures for those um, two treaties shortly before East Timor's independence.
1: And that was really deliberate, you reckon?
3: Well, the timing suggests that it was. Um, mm. It suggests that Australia's um, continental shelf case was not something they were very confident about, uh, being able to win in a, in a kind of third-party um, arbitrated neutral dispute resolution. So they dropped out of those two particular treaties uh, that left um, Timor-Leste at a particular disadvantage. They couldn't go to a, a neutral third umpire. Um, and that's set the tone, I suppose, for some of the subsequent developments in Australia and East Timor's relations
1: over the Timor Sea. Hmm. I mean, regardless of all the rules and regulations and laws the fact is ethically and morally this is absolutely despicable what um, Australia has done to East Timor one of the poorest nations in the world and a very young new nation relative to other nations. Um, how, how does Australia um, justify this? Here, well,
3: Australia puts. Uh, to the fact that though there's no maritime boundary between the two nations, <clears throat> and that is an unusual, that's the, only, that's the only maritime boundary we haven't settled with our neighbours. Australia points to the fact that we do have revenue sharing agreements, and that Australia argues that some of those are relatively generous to East Timor. Now East Timor on the other hand argues that uh, it's not generous if you give us 90% of what's all ours, it's still <laughs> exactly. a million line. Um <laughs> So, there are debates there, but, you know, um, certainly Australia has a justification. I think people need to be aware of what those justifications are. Um, they argue that, um you know, there's revenue sharing agreements that have produced 16 billion dollars for, for East Timor, and that's, you know, the majority of its budget, which is true. Now, of course, you need to go and then look at the, what the Timorese are arguing. The Timorese are arguing that, uh, in on a median line settlement, that, um, most, even larger percentage of these, um, resources would be, would be Timorese. Um, so, you know, uh, they're the two positions But you, when you think about why Australia dropped out at that time From a from a, from a a binding dispute resolution uh, jurisdiction It raises questions as to whether Australia was in fact very confident in its position Or was just being pragmatic and exercising its power
1: But I don't think it's up to um, Australia to decide what is appropriate Or what is large or small income for East in the first place It mm-hmm. uh, took to... To say that is completely patronising, if not very colonial, in the attitude to this thing.
3: Well, people can make their own judgments on Australia's behaviour there and, <clears throat> and its position. One of the things that Australia argues and China argues the same is that they are in favour of negotiations, bilateral negotiations. Uh, and it's true that bilateral negotiations are you know, um, a common method for solving disputes like this. But, but the other thing about bilateral negotiations that's really important to understand is that it puts a lot of power in the hands of the more powerful nation. And that's why China uses that sort of line in South China Sea, and it's presumably why Australia uses uh, that approach here in the Timor Sea. And it's really important for your listeners to understand, I think, that Australia has a median line boundary with every other nation <laughs> that we border, uh, including New Zealand, which we settled in 2004. There is no maritime boundary at all with East Timor. That's what you need to understand. Australia has maritime boundaries settled with all its neighbours, mm. except for East Timor. And that's why it's called the Timor Gap. Yep. Instead of a maritime boundary, there's a series of revenue-sharing agreements.
1: But Dana Guzmao, the former president of East Timor, who's representing East Timor at The Hague at the moment, um, says that the agreement signed in uh, 2001 one two was done so under duress. Uh, how far do you think he'll, they will go with that sort of argument?
3: Well, I think you might be referring to the CMATS Treaty, um, which is a little bit later, uh, 2006, and he's referring to the allegations that um, the Australian uh, Secret Service agency, ASIS, was spying on the Timorese negotiating team. Uh, those allegations come from a well placed source, a former ASIS operative. <laughs> so, um, he might That's be
1: 2012, to... isn't it? When Canberra was spying and there was a scandal about it.
3: Well, the, the, the actual spying took place in 2004. The All treaty right. was, okay. The, the, the alleged spying. The treaty was signed in 2006, but Timor didn't become aware of it till some time later, and thus it became a, an issue then.
0: So
1: the um, argument by Guzmán is not going to matter too much?
3: Well, um, separate to this conciliation that's going on right now, um, Tim Olesda is challenging the CMATS Treaty in the, um, in the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, that's a separate matter, and they're arguing that the CMATS Treaty is void for want of good faith because Australia spied on the negotiating team for commercial advantage they're arguing that under the Vienna Treaty, which is the treaty that governs all treaties, that shows a lack of good faith and makes that treaty void. <clears throat> so that, that, that decision hasn't been, uh, that, 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 that process hasn't come to an end yet. We don't know the outcome of that process, but certainly Timor is objecting to that treaty.
1: Mm, just to clarify things a bit, uh, I got confused there when you said I have jumped to the CMAP um, mm. treaty. Mm. What were the... Uh, If you could just give us a a bit more clarity in the different agreements, that would be helpful. Yes,
3: well, it might help if we go back to 1972 really quickly. Um, Back then, uh, Timor-Leste was, or East Timor, was Portuguese Timor. It was still the colonial era. Australia settled a continental shelf boundary that was very favourable to Australia with Indonesia in the Timor Sea. But, of course, uh, part of the Timor Sea is, um, is Portuguese Timor, now called East Timor. And the Portuguese would not agree to a uh, continental shelf boundary that favoured Australia because they felt, correctly, that international law was already heading in the direction of a median line. And they were right. So there never was a boundary between Australia and Portuguese Timor. <clears throat> and there still isn't today with an independent East Timor. And there wasn't one when it was forcibly integrated into Indonesia either. What there was instead was an agreement between Australia and Indonesia to divvy up the resources in their 50 50 then, with the restoration of Timorese independence <coughs> in 2002, that had to be renegotiated. Uh, it was a bit of a sore point for these Timorese, as you can well imagine. Mm. And uh, at that point, Australia, um, there was a series of treaties, including the t- Timor uh, Sea Treaty, the Sunrise in- um, Unitization Agreement, and then later CMATS. And there's three interrelated treaties that basically govern revenues in that area. Mm. Um, the upshot of it, was that um, Um, Timor-Leste gets 90% and Australia gets 10% of this particular area called the Joint Petroleum Development Area but on a median line settlement that would be 100% Timor's territory. Slightly more complicated is a field called the Greater Sunrise Field where um, it's um, arguably, depending on where the lateral boundary is, uh, there's an argument over how much of that is actually East Timor's That's not necessarily to do with whether there's a median line or not, but the Timorese certainly their position is that they would be getting a larger percentage of that on fair boundaries uh, than they get today. So three treaties um, all kind of interlinked. The one that the Timorese really uh, object to is the CMATS treaty which puts off maritime boundary settlement for 50 years. they agreed to that back in 2004 to 2006 when they were quite weak. They didn't have a budget. Their, their entire budget was aid money.
0: Mm.
3: And they needed to get some revenue flowing. And they later uh, found, well, they allege, um, based on the testimony of a former ACES agent, that they were spied upon in that process as well. Hmm. So it's quite and complicated, isn't it? It is a complicated series of, of events. But because Australia dropped out of the jurisdiction, that allows for a compulsory determination, mm. a third-party determination. Timor has now adopted the, this course um, that they're on now, which is called a compulsory conciliation. So, the conciliation is a reserve dispute settlement uh, process uh, for this sort of situation. Has never been used before, and I can explain that to your listeners if you're interested. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the compulsory conciliation has been triggered by timor last day. What it means is that uh, any party to the Um UNCLOS agreement, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, even if they have dropped out of the compulsory jurisdiction, compulsory third-party dispute resolution, which Australia has, must turn up to a conciliation. So Australia has appointed two conciliation commissioners. Timor has appointed two, and there's a fifth one that they've all agreed upon. And this will sit uh, for a number of months, probably about a, a year, and make a bunch of recommendations about what should happen in relation to the maritime boundary. This is not an issue that Australia has ever wanted to discuss before, Australia will not negotiate over the maritime boundary, it will negotiate over other things like revenue shares but not over the placement of a maritime boundary. The Commission is going to come down with a report, (coughs) Australia must um, uh, be a party to the conciliation and then Australia must start good faith negotiations with Timor-Leste using that report as the, and its recommendations as the basis for discussion. However Australia is not bound to follow those particular recommendations so it is a weaker process than the one that Australia dropped out of.
1: Mm, but they're still arguing they have no, this court has no jurisdiction over this.
3: Well that's right. The first thing that Australia has done and you're absolutely right is argue that there is no dispute because the CMATS treaty by agreement puts off maritime boundary determination for 50 years and mm-hmm. the Timorese did sign that treaty back in 2006 when they were in a very weak position and um, didn't have any um, funds, they literally had no budget and at that point did not realise the allegations of spying that were to take place subsequently.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So yeah, uh, so Tim was trying to have that overturned basically and uh, it's basically arguing that they have the right uh, under international law to a maritime boundary. Um, Timor also has the option of terminating the CMATS treaty. So if this if this um, challenge to the jurisdiction, Australia arguing that there is no dispute, were to succeed, that would not be the end of the matter because Timor actually has the option of terminating that treaty because there's been no development. And if they did that, then, then we could come back to this point again, presumably, where there's a compulsory conciliation. And this time around, the next time around, Australia wouldn't have this argument. So I, one way or another, I expect we're going to see a a report from from a conciliation commission
1: Yes, but it's also interesting that um, uh, you know, that's a certain double standard um, if you like, uh, when it comes to the way they claim China's behaving uh, in the Spratly Islands basically and they even have uh, sent a military force to safeguard the so-called maritime orders Mm. in the waters of other countries so that's a bit tricky, isn't it?
3: Yes, and, and, and DFAT's quite sensitive about people making that point, um, but I, it's, it's certainly a point that um, one might make. Um, uh, so Australia has adopted a fairly strong position that China should should follow the rule of law mm. in the South China Sea dispute. There has been a very strong finding from the um, from the UNCLOS tribunal on that dispute uh, that favoured Philippines in most respects. Um, uh, Australia DFAT says we aren't doing that in the, in the Timor Sea, but it's difficult to see the the, the real distinction. Um, uh, so, <laughs> China basically doesn't recognize the verdict and Australia doesn't recognize the jurisdiction.
0: <laughs> yes.
3: It's a fairly fine <laughs> distinction to make, and uh, some might argue that the net effect is the same that uh, when it comes to the crunch in terms of a binding dispute resolution, Australia is adopting a fairly similar position to China, which is that they won't be party to these sort of uh, determinations but rather favour bilateral negotiations and as I said earlier of course one of the things that bilateral negotiations do is favour the the much stronger of the two negotiating parties
1: bullying the weak well Uh,
3: one might draw that conclusion there's certainly a power differential between China (laughs) and Philippines and there's certainly a power differential between (laughs) Australia and Timor-Leste
1: Yes, yes, and and yes. it's it's um difficult to to you know sit back and and watch this because East Timor is a poor country, in one of the poorest nations in the world, and Australia, one of the richest, is um not playing fair, according to many people, I'd say, including myself. But that's a, a point of view anyone can have, I guess.
3: Well, um, your listeners will you know, can, make up their own uh, mind. <laughs> make up their own mind, but you know, there's lots of um resources on the internet to go and check out, and you can um, go, for example, to the Lowy interpreter where you'll see DFAT's position outlined mm. and uh, responses to that position, including some that I wrote, um, where you can see a kind of debate going on uh, over the over the um, two uh, positions. and uh, It came up shortly after the South China Sea determination, mm. um, but there's heaps of things on the internet that people can read. Um, mm. Yeah,
1: but it's nice to have a bit of a chat about it too. Oh,
3: of course, you know because <laughs> it's a complicated thing. As as your um, as your listeners have probably gathered by by now, there's a complicated history to it. But the bottom line is this: there is no maritime boundary between Australia and Timor-Leste. Mm. That is the only gap in our all our maritime boundaries. And with the exception of the 1972 boundary with Indonesia in the Timor Sea, which is a continental shelf that favours Australia, every other border we have. Is median line mm. every other one, yeah, begs which is to the vast majority, yes, and that's what Timor to. wants. Yes. There's even a median line boundary with Indonesia in the Arafura Sea. Oh, it's just gosh. the Timor Sea yeah. where there was a continental shelf argument, and and basically Indonesia got taken to the cleaners in 972 and they know it. Um, and so <laughs> um, yeah, and Australia tried to replicate that with Portuguese Timor, failed to do so because the Portuguese wouldn't buy it, mm. and. That's why there's a gap, uh, that's why there is no boundary there, and that's why there are instead revenue-sharing agreements, and that's where we are today. Uh, Timor is trying to get a maritime boundary.
1: Yeah, it's almost a continuation of the decolonization process in the end, isn't it? All the complications it throws up.
3: Well, uh, there is a legacy there, yes, mm. that's right. Mm. Um, although in this case you might look back on the, the, the actions of the Portuguese administration just in this respect and, and think, well, they made the right decision yes, not to did. agree. To yes,
1: it, you know. um, yeah. yes, very unlike what's happening in West Papua, but th- that's another story. Yes, that's but anyway, right. thank you very much, Michael. That was very, very interesting. Welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Yes, we're running a little bit behind um, in relation to Uncle Kevin Haley's contribution, but this is, this is an important uh, issue because uh, if you had enjoyed our program and um, the, the last two interviews you have heard on... Uh, Solidarity Breakfast, please consider um, donating to um, the program or 3CR, whatever you choose. We we didn't make our target for the fundraiser this, this year. We are several thousand dollars short. So I'm putting out this appeal for people who may be able to donate. Anything above $2 is tax deductible. And the, announce, the announcement that was put on before was specifically for that. Um, we will be happy to receive any um, amount of um, donations to keep the station on air, and I'm sure you um, will be happy to have an independent media available to you. Uh, given what's happening in the media world, like in Western Australia, there's going to be more of monopoly of uh, the media. So support 3CR, donate. Um, as um, much as you can. Um, as, I, as I said, um, $2 and above is tax deductible. And thank you very much. And um, now let's go on to Kevin Healy. Apologies for the slight delay. Here we go.
4: A weak solidarity Brecky team Lister when the unpatriotic, indeed treacherous greed and selfishness of dull bludgers and pensioners was exposed yet again. When they rejected little cuts to their exorbitant incomes, when those cuts are needed to balance the budget so the government can undertake important reforms. Like tax cuts for the filthy rich and the great corporations who need the taxes they don't pay cut. Meaning they'll be avoiding lower taxes, so- sorry taxes minimising lower taxes, which makes lots of sense, and the government and the filthy rich know those tax cuts will also benefit the myopic doll bludgers and pensioners and the dollar pension cuts comprise only about 8 or 10% of the cost of the tax cuts, so the government will have to find even more cuts, highlighting even more, patently, alarmingly, how selfish the budgets are, and, thank goodness, the Socialist Party is happy to sit down with the caring business class party and work out the cuts required to achieve the all-important tax reform. They're not called the opposition for nothing. Uh, So they must be called it for something, although what that something is we've got no idea. Even so, crying foul as the government desperate to find those savings by slashing the doll and the pension and programs that threaten the hegemony of fossil profits, that sort of public waste, but intent on honouring an election promise to great liberal thinkers Corey St. Bernardi and the gang to spend a couple of hundred billion to prevent the blasphemous abuse of Christian marriage between a man and a woman, crying foul that they need the law waived, so they can offend and insult. We must have a level playing field, the true blue Christian lobbying vitriol bemoaned. HOW CAN WE CONDUCT A BALANCED AND RATIONAL DEBATE IF WE CANNOT INSULT AND OFFEND THESE UNNATURAL, SUBHUMAN SERVANTS OF SATAN? A strong point by George. George, of course, one of the great liberal thinkers, Christian by commitment and Christian by name. George, Christian, son of a man and a woman. And Corey knows allowing same-sex marriage would lead to bestiality, no doubt about it, and Being a Saint Bernardi, naturally he takes it seriously and nervously. Naturally over unnatural, and the bloody socialists look like knocking back the plebiscite, which is the only way to stave off the unnatural. And big supremo Malcolm Tunne Bull and Corey and George and all that lot say the socialists have no choice but to support the non-binding 200 mil or so plebiscite because they have a mandate. And we must congratulate all mainstream journalists, as an aside, congratulations to the media for the saturation coverage of the maiden speech, as they call it, of a terra woman who spoke in her traditional language. Congratulate them for sensibly not asking or acknowledging that those who oppose the plebiscite received a mandate to oppose the plebiscite. But apparently, once a government is elected, everyone has to support everything it proposes so how come we really have a 100% vote and how come, given the socialists must respect the Caring Business Class Party's mandate the Caring Business Class Party doesn't have to respect the Caring Business Class Party mandate on superannuation because Corey and George and the great liberal thinkers told Malcolm and economic guru, scuttle them more less, son that mandate would hurt the filthy rich and so the people got that one wrong and Corey and George and the great liberal thinkers had to adjust the mandate a non-core mandate apparently so the filthy rich would get justice and the socialists would be treating the true blue people with contempt if they did not support the non-mandate and Malcolm said respecting the non-mandate showed he was a true democrat who consulted over decisions uh, so he consulted the true blue people Certainly, you're not suggesting Corey and George and Eric are bets on the bosses aren't true blue Aussie people, are you? Corey and George and Eric did insert one rider into the issue of the mandate we must respect. We must respect that mandate if it is a mandate with a woman. But if it is a mandate with a, with, with a, with a, I can't say it, with a a man, there I said it, with a man, it is, if it is, then we must prevent bestiality wherever it raises its ugly head. We mentioned last week the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last dark ages, whom they keep dredging up for invaluable national advice, advised the question of a treaty with the Terranilius people would be really divisive. It it would divide the true blue Aussie community. It really would. And shows these blacks don't know their place. It, It really does. Well, in this week's dredging up, he advised that the right to offend and insult was essential. If we are to uh, save true marriage between a man and a uh, woman, it, it really is. He also asserted women should know their place, which is in the, uh, in the kitchen. It, it really is. Then how come the vast majority of highly paid so-called celebrity chefs and chefs in obscenely expensive restaurants are men? There are uh, kitchens and there are uh, uh, kitchens. Uh, Those uh, kitchens are are a man's place. They, They really are. On those he sent to slaughter on behalf of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, liberty, freedom and democracy, particularly the freedom of capital bit, and 15 years later hasn't that worked out a treat, the True Blue he Graduate School of Management is offering an $80,000 scholarship for past or present trained killers designed, the school said, to encourage those who have proudly served our country to undertake a transformative professional experience that will complement their elite training. And it makes sense for what better way to keep the workers in their place than a boss wandering around with an automatic rifle slung over her or his shoulder, although I'm prepared to bet there won't be too many hers getting the scholarship. Big super investment funds express concern that fewer than 10% of workers are putting extra into their super funds, about the same proportion as the super filthy rich versus the non-super filthy rich in the community generally. But wonder if they've considered there just might be a reason for the 90 or so percent letting the big investors down, not investing all that fortune they don't know what to do with at the end of the week from their outlandish wages which are crippling their economy, like there mightn't be a hell of a lot over at the end of the week to invest with the big investment funds. Then again, as the experts who know all about the greatest little economic order of them all keep telling us, slow wages growth is some sort of problem, and as we keep telling them, that's easily fixed. Doing their bit to maintain the slow wage growth bit, well, wage non-growth, BHP Billiston for bloody huge profits, the big none true blue Aussie, which after a year of frustrated enterprise agreement discussions with coal unions in Queensland, her most gracious majesty's land, good, good, lifting the world out of poverty, coal, evil, evil unions, frustrated because the workers apparently had overblown expectations like being paid and provided with crippling work conditions, crippling to the caring employer that is bloody huge peas made its final non-negotiable offer a three-year wage freeze and reduced bonuses superannuation insurance payments and rent subsidies an annual rent increase of three thousand one hundred and twenty dollars taken from the frozen wage true listener no embellishment Bloody Huge Peas feels confident because it has contracted out many of the jobs to contractors undercutting wages and conditions. Not that there would be any sort of conspiracy between all these caring employers to undermine wages and conditions, it's just they need to unite against worker greed and evil union lawlessness. It happens so often, doesn't it, when an unrelated third party, an evil union, gets involved in the win-win relationship between caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers. Poor, caring employers complaining that negotiations have dragged on and on and on. We have negotiated in good faith, but the union, which should not even be involved in this matter, won't take no for an answer. We mentioned during the election campaign, it may be alleged Attorney General George Brandy's brain misled Parliament over directions concerning the Solicitor-General. Watch this space, we said. Well, Parliament's back. It's a slow burn, but keep watching this space. Speaking of evil, no relationship to George, I was thinking of evil unions, how evil those non-Palestinian non-people are, threatening world peace from their non-country, a threat to liberty, freedom and democracy in the liberty, freedom and democracy love and country that used to be their country, and which they selfishly still claim is their country, ignoring the stroke of a British and its respectable partner's pen. So evil... The U.S. of has been forced to hand 50 billion over to poor peace-loving Zion for trained killing, showing what a threat those non-country, non-people are. But a true win-win this time, because the condition is Zion must spend the 50 bill with U.S. of merchants of death. Finally, in the U.S. of, former big supremo Ronnie Reagan's family were angered and distressed that John Hinckley, the bloke sorry, Guy, who shot at and injured their old man, is being released. They were devastated at such lead MC getting out after only 35 years. Then again, we might reckon he deserved 35 years for missing. Good morning.
1: Yes, we need money. And I forgot to mention contact details before when I was talking about us on reaching the Radiothon target. And it's 94198377. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Please ring during office hours so then we start to take your details. <coughs> Sorry, just had a coffee fit then. Now a couple of announcements before we go on to the last interview for the morning. <coughs> As we know, the brewery workers at C U B still holding strong, still need your support. Um, These are workers who have been sacked, 62 of them, and been offered their job back with 65% less pay, (coughs) and they're fighting to get their jobs back, and so far well supported, but to keep the battle going, they need as much support as possible, and the same goes for the housing protests at Bendigo Street, although they've been ordered to find accommodation, (coughs) that battle still needs support, because they are not able to find accommodation as easily as the court has ordered. So that's going to be uh, another uh, development later on for us to watch. Now, today there's a rally at Fed Square at 1 p.m., Uh, called by the Kurdish uh, community. This is in response to the Turkish attack on the uh, Kurd community under the cover of fighting Syria. And the YPG has actually been uh, fighting with the American forces against ISIS in that battle, in that complicated, messy uh, battle in Syria. So if you are up and around, please do uh, support the Kurds. 1 p.m. Fett Square today. Now, Theatre Hart, uh, is putting on a show um, using testimonials from the stolen generation. Nunga man Ian Mitchell invites you to listen uh, to Silent Stories of This Country, 8.30 p.m. 22nd of September, a Thursday, at the La Mama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. The Sea Shepherd is uh, putting on uh, tours, it's, uh, ocean defense tours. It's their biggest fundraiser for the year. So if you support the work of the Sea Shepherd, uh, please attend this one. It's uh, on the 24th of September, which is a Saturday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Southern Operations Base, Sea Works, 82 Nelson Place, Williamstown. Now, the, another important forum is on West Papua, the struggle for independence. Speakers in, in, uh, include Jeffrey Ikwa, who's, uh, who was a refugee, one of the 42 who came to Australia by boat, and Robert Stringer, a retired United, United Church pastor, a radical one, a bit of a liberation theologist. And this forum is being held on the 4th of October, which is a Tuesday, at the Res- Resistance Center, Level 5407 Swanson Street. Um, hosted by Socialist Alliance. Now, there are a couple of other announcements I'll come to later. But now we're going to the final interview, which is with Jayathilaka. And we'll explain the details in a sec. This is an interview with Jayathilaka Banara, who is a social activist and primarily a singer who's entertained thousands in Sri Lanka. As a singer, he has been at the forefront of human rights in um, Sri Lanka and has been arrested by the Sri Lankan government for his advocacy of human rights issues. So we shall go into the interview, and Ajit will be helping with the translation from Sinhalese to English. Welcome to 3CR, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to our program about your experiences.
5: I will. Okay.
1: I'm just wondering if you could tell us about your journey um, When did you become political? I know you were arrested in the 70s. Perhaps give us a brief outline and your journey into music. In in
5: 1970, um, I was uh, a student at uh, uh, a school uh, in Anuradhapur, a remote uh, uh, area in Sri Lanka. Uh, I was um, studying for the university entrance exams, and uh, we had dreams uh, Uh, of going to universities and finding a job uh, and uh, doing well in life. Uh, But uh, it was like a a dream that uh, uh, couldn't be sort of realized because of the situation in Sri Lanka. Uh, During that period, I started uh, attending uh, classes conducted by uh, the JVP movement, uh, revolutionary movement. and I learned about uh, social justice, socialism, and uh, uh, those things. And uh, I decided to uh, join that uh, the campaign, the party. And uh, I left the school uh, and joined uh, uh, the movement uh, and worked there on a full-time basis. And then in 1971, our struggle, I mean, we lost our struggle uh, to uh, overthrow the uh, then government and uh, we were arrested and we were imprisoned and we were in prison for a few years.
1: Okay. Um, when did his journey into music commence?
5: My mother um, at home uh, used to um, sing to us and we were um, listening to my uh, uh, mother and uh, then my uh, brother started uh, studying music at school and uh, he was a sitar player at school. And then my father bought, bought us a sita, and then we all, uh, my brothers, uh, we all together uh, studied, I mean, uh, practiced the sita at home. And gradually uh, we became uh, sort of uh, good at music, and uh, we were enjoying it at home. And then, uh, then when we were in prison in 1971, we were alone. Uh, and then we, to overcome our loneliness, we started to sing. And uh, uh, that's how uh, I started, uh, uh, as a, I mean, uh, became a singer. And then uh, uh, we started uh, uh, various other art uh, activities as well, drama, singing, uh, music.
1: In, in, in prison, were they uh, political in nature, the singing, the drama, and so on? Is that where he combined politics and uh, music?
5: When we were in prison, we, we didn't have uh, our own uh, kind of songs. Uh, uh, we were singing uh, uh, the popular songs uh, uh, then, um, uh, but the, we, we selected popular songs among uh, among other songs. We selected uh, the songs that. Uh, uh, the meaning uh, had the uh, i mean the songs that were talking about the country and the workers' struggles and uh, people 's problems and that kind of songs and then gradually we started uh, writing our uh, own songs uh, to highlight uh, our issues
1: hmm. um, when, did, when, when he got released from prison, uh, obviously he would have thought about what he wanted to do with his future um, was His journey into music, um, you know, did that happen straight away or did he, you know, come back to it later on after doing some other things?
5: Um, When we were in in the prison, uh, we didn't have any uh, musical instruments. Uh, Our musical instruments were the plates that were uh, given to us, the metal plates, aluminum jugs. uh, Those are the things that we used as instruments. But after coming out uh, from the prison, um, we joined the uh, Janata Vimukti Peram, the People's Liberation Front, uh, the campaign. And uh, the JVP started the musical uh, program called Vimukti uh, Gi. And uh, we had our own songs uh, written by uh, the members of uh, the party. And all the songs were about... Uh, Uh, social issues, uh, about social justice uh, with a a political aim.
1: Okay, uh, later on he actually resigned from the party. Um, Is he happy to talk about the reasons as to why he resigned?
5: I had differences with the JVP uh, for a long time. Even when when I was in the uh, jail, um, I had uh, different views. Uh, The JVP uh, was against uh, the state workers uh, that were brought in from India to Sri Lanka to work in the state sector. They had a, um, a campaign against uh, uh, Indian, uh, they call it Indian, Indian imperialism, and uh, basically it was a campaign against uh, the state workers in the state sector. State sector. And um, uh, I couldn't agree with that, but uh, while... Uh, I'm, Though we had uh, differences, I uh, participated in this uh, the, the Vimugtigi, uh, the song uh, campaign. After a while, uh, I had to leave uh, that as well. And um, uh, not only uh, the, uh, the their musical campaign, and then I left the, their party as well.
1: So let's now jump to the 80s, um, when there's a lot of violence and so on. Um, how did he manage to continue his um, human rights campaign uh, given the enormous struggles uh, that has been experienced by the people in Sri Lanka? In the 1980s, there was a lot of violence um, oh, yes. you know, by the state and, of course, oh, yes. the Tamils fought back and, and a lot of race issues that, that came to the front. So that must have been very hard for him um, as a Sinhala person and fighting for human rights um, in a situation like that, that was very uh, volatile, very violent, and very racially divided. How did he comment his journey at that point of time, or or continue his journey, rather?
5: After the riots in 1983 um, by uh, Sinhalese mobs against uh, the Tamils, um, it was uh, very difficult to uh, um, uh, work uh, in the human rights uh, field. But uh, that that was uh, sponsored by the then government, the government uh, the, which came to power in 1977 uh, started with the, the racist campaign uh, against the Tamils, and the economic program also put a lot of pressure on people, and uh, they made constitutional constitutional changes to uh, isolate the Tamil community from from the uh, the island, and uh, that led to uh, uh, very uh, uh, unstable political situation, but even under those circumstances, we managed to uh, raise our voice. But it was not that bad um, compared to the situation uh, in last few years in Sri Lanka. Uh, I mean, 1983 period was not that bad. Um, uh, the oppression was there, but still we had some space to uh, work.
1: Mm. And one of the uh, key questions I wanted to ask him is, how did he manage to relate to the Sinhala people? Because at that time, the race relations were at, at rock bottom it was, the racism was uh, at its peak rather. Um, how did he manage to, uh, um, you know, garner support among the Sinhala people um, while the government was you know, having enormous propaganda against the Tamils. The division was their focus. How did he manage to get support from the Singhala people? In
5: 1983
1: or the recent past?
5: Recent past. Yeah. I don't consider um, people uh, as racist uh, Sinhalese people in the south or uh, anywhere else in the country. Uh, in 1983, uh, when mobs, Government-sponsored mobs were attacking uh, Tamils. A lot of Sinhalese families uh, provided shelter to those uh, Tamil families, and they they were given protection uh, by uh, various people uh, in all parts of uh, the island. So I don't consider them as racists, but it is the politicians uh, who started to uh, divide people on racist lines and various other uh, religious lines. So it's the politicians who uh, divided the country, and uh, uh, and uh, that led to uh, the, the youth in the north and east to take up arms against uh, the government uh, uh, in Colombo. So the Tamils uh, started uh, their campaign, uh, uh, the um, fight against, uh, I mean, uh, the oppression. Uh, but uh, uh, gradually uh, that... Uh, led to some extreme uh, political uh, views, and uh, led to uh, uh, it led to uh, uh, escalated war. And uh, the both parties, uh, 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 the nationalist and racist in the south, and uh, the militants in the north, uh, uh, pushed the country uh, towards a, toward a uh, uh, very bad uh, situation and uh, because of this extreme waves uh, uh, from uh, uh, the single side in the south and from the north uh, the socialists and uh, people who were fighting for human rights uh, had a very limited space uh, to work with they they were getting uh, uh, pressure from both sides from the south and the north uh, because of that uh, we couldn't work uh, we had to uh, uh, Work, I mean, use the limited space that uh, we had, and gradually over the years, um, uh, that space uh, got narrower and narrower.
1: Mm. So, <clears throat> over the uh, last period after the defeat of the LTTE, um, and even before, how has um, the reception to his message of human rights uh, gone down with the Tamil people, north and south?
5: Uh, During the war, we we didn't have uh, any space, Uh, and uh, after uh, the war, I mean, uh, uh, after the LTT was defeated, um, uh, we had, uh, uh, we managed to uh, uh, make contacts with the people in the north. Uh, During the war, uh, we were not allowed to travel to those parts uh, of the island. Uh, We were not uh, allowed to uh, say anything about uh, what's happening in uh, the north. But after uh, the war, uh, we are, now we are allowed to uh, go to the north. Uh, we we, we, we can, uh, can, I mean, we have established contacts with the uh, various uh, groups in the north, but I, I'm not still satisfied with uh, uh, the progress. Uh, even after the war, um, uh, we, we uh, were not allowed to uh, talk about the uh, people in the north, what happened during the war. And those killings, uh, the previous regime uh, labeled us as traitors. Whoever uh, talked uh, against the killings, uh, whoever tried to raise those issues uh, in the south, were tra- uh, uh, labeled as traitors. Because of that, uh, not, not only in the north, we didn't even have any space in the south. We couldn't uh, speak up in the south as well. Not only the singers, uh, the journalists, uh, filmmakers, and they all uh, were silenced.
0: Mm.
1: So, um, what is his opinion of the current political situation in Sri Lanka?
5: If um, if the previous regime uh, continued, uh, I don't know where we would have ended up. But in 2015 January, we managed to overthrow the. Worst regime that we had in Sri Lankan history. Um, the Sinhalese, the Tamils, and Muslims all came together to overthrow the uh, previous regime. But it was from, it was uh, not a big w- victory. We managed to win with a small uh, majority. Uh, but uh, we managed to get rid of the uh, the regime. Uh, I don't have much hopes with the.
1: any left-wing parties that have survived the last few decades of um, tumultuous you know, situations in, in Sri Lanka and is um, building the forces at the moment?
5: I don't believe that there's a left movement uh, uh, in Sri Lanka uh, but uh, I hope uh, that we would uh, be able to uh, 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 established a left movement with sri lanka uh, but the left movement died long time ago because of uh, coalition politics uh, the left parties the, uh, made alliances with capitalist parties in the past and that led to the uh, uh, diminution of uh, the left uh, uh, politics in sri lanka and uh, the jvp was the only party who had some uh, mass support but um, uh, we had hopes on JVP, but the JVP took uh, the, the nationalist and Chauvinist line on the ethnic issue. So uh, they, they um, lost uh, uh, the opportunity to become a uh, left party in Sri Lanka. Right now, uh, we don't have a, a left movement as such, but I hope uh, there will be one in the future.
1: <clears throat> Is there anything else he'd like to add um, as we've come to the end of the interview? Um, something else he wants to say about um, his music maybe and his his human rights campaign over the last few decades
5: Um, we are political activists, we we are doing a political campaign but I don't believe that a political campaign alone will be able to uh, bring people together and uh, resolve uh, the issues we have among ourselves I think, I strongly believe that literature art, uh, songs and um, we, we, we need to uh, use the literature as a part of our struggle to educate our people and to bring uh, uh, people together. Uh, it's very difficult, uh, uh, but uh, we shouldn't give up.
1: It One last it. question. I, I kept this to the last because I wasn't sure he, if he wants to answer it. At the moment, there are campaigns building um, in Australia to stop Australia sending Tamil refugees back to Sri Lanka, those people who run by boat. Does he have an opinion on that? If Only if he wants to answer the question. Yeah,
5: sure. I'm totally against uh, 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 the way the refugees are treated uh, in Australia. Uh, they should be given protection. Uh, the Australia, Australian government uh, um, should comply with uh, the international law um, everybody, anybody who is seeking asylum should have uh, the right uh, to put forward their case and uh, properly heard. Um, uh, not only in, uh, uh, I'm not talking because of uh, the Sri Lankan, on behalf of the Sri Lankans, anybody who is fl- fl- fleeing any country uh, because of persecution or uh, any political reason should be given protection. Uh, the Australian government uh, should abide by. Those uh, international uh, uh, conventions.
1: Okay. Tell him, thank you very much um, for spending the last 40
0: odd minutes talking to 3CR. Okay. Okay. Thank and you, and tell him, thank him you, thank you, you right. so much.